That's Fresh Blood by the Eels. If you feel like you recognize that tune, it's probably because you saw that amazing HBO special about the dude who killed all those people and got away with it called, I think it was called The Phoenix. Um, the the rich guy from New York um, who went to Texas and killed the dude and probably killed his girlfriend and his wife and all these other people and basically basically kind of invited a filmmaker to come and catch him. Yeah, this is very strange, special. If you didn't see it, check it out. Find it on Netflix or whatever. I think it's five episodes, and it is It's really interesting, and that's a perfect theme song for it because the dude's a monster, but kind of makes you want to dance, you know? He's very charismatic, very compelling, Kind of feel like, you know, he'd be a great guest on the podcast. One of the things I think about doing when I get this van and do the whole podcast tour, by the way, that seems to be moving forward. I talked to my dad, my not my dad, my uncle about it today. Uncle Dan. Hey, you know Uncle Dan. Anyway, Uncle Dan's looking for a van. Uh, and then he and I are going to outfit it together, you know, set it all up. That'll be a lot of fun. I'll go to Florida. We'll hang out, set up the van, and then I'll drive that bitch around and see what I find. There are lots of people who I can't wait to interview. I've already got a whole list, 30, 40 podcast guests. But another thing I'd like to do is go to prisons, you know, uh, go to prisons and talk to people. Stone cold killers. See how that goes. Um, not, not like psychopaths, but there are a lot of people in prison who are good people who just, you know, made the wrong move at the wrong moment. God knows I, I could have spent my fucking life in prison. Allegedly, there are a lot of things that uh, I did that if I'd gotten caught doing them would have landed me in prison for a long, long time. Allegedly. You always got to say allegedly. That's what my lawyer tells me. I don't have a fucking lawyer. But if I had a lawyer, I know that's what he'd tell me. Okay, this episode, uh, I recorded this earlier today. So I just, I'm throwing in an intro here because I thought it was all done. And then I listened to the beginning because I thought, did I put any music at the beginning? How did that be? How did the beginning work? 
what actually happened was I started recording it thinking that I would fold it into something later because I was thinking about this email I got from this guy and I thought, fuck it, why don't I just record it right now instead of trying to remember what I was going to say and cluttering up my brain. I'll just record it now. I'm sitting in front of the computer. And uh, so I started recording it uh, just cold and it went on for almost an hour because this guy's email is so deep and interesting and funny that I just kept rolling with this one and then uh, forgot that I didn't do an intro. So here's your intro. If it sounds like it's sort of jammed in before the uh, the substance of the podcast, well, you're absolutely right about that. All right, I'm finished jamming this in. Thank you for supporting the podcast, keeping it bullshit advertisement free for, I don't know, a couple of years now at least, right? Uh, yeah, I very much appreciate. I feel blessed at the ability to do this and make some money from it. Not a ton of money, but enough money that it's definitely worthwhile. And uh, And I feel grateful to you. Grateful to your friends who are buying shit on Amazon because you ask them to because you don't ever buy shit on Amazon, but they do. Grateful to everybody. I'm feeling particularly grateful to those of you who have been helping out uh, with the transcriptions of the podcast for the book we're putting together, this tangentially reading book. Uh, there are going to be some really interesting, cool interviews in there. Of course, Stanley Krippner is going to be in there. Uh, Neil Strauss, Duncan Trussell... Who else? Uh, Joe Rogan hasn't uh, signed the release. He didn't respond to my email, but Joe gets so many fucking emails. Who knows if he even saw it? If you want Joe Rogan to be in the in the book, maybe, I don't know, hassle him on Twitter or something. Maybe he'll see that. Um, who else? Mary Roach, Andrew Weil, Tucker Max, uh, the guy who robbed all those banks and escaped from prison. I, all these cool people are going to be in this edition of the book. So I'm really looking forward to that. And there are some people helping out, um, really doing a lot of work helping out with the transcriptions. Joey Yip apparently has done three already. He's a transcribing maniac. We've got Nate Atwood and Matt Shumsky have done two already. And it's a lot of work. I mean, that's a lot of work typing that stuff. Um, and also they're not just typing it, they're choosing, they're going through and ignoring the boring shit. And, you know, they're, they're, they've got some creative control in this. So we're really happy to have you guys involved. Um, Na Snow, what a cool name, Na Snow. Hi, I'm Na Snow. I love that. Alistair Chalk, sounds like a upper class British gentleman. Amanda Rice, rolls off the tongue, Amanda Rice. Hi, I'm Amanda Rice. I'll bet you are. Jorge Alsate. I don't know if I said that right. Sarah Bennett, Mark Pershing, Kellen Singer, Felipe Serna, Jessica Howard, Toby Harper, and Cora Venus Lunny. Thank you all so much for your help with this project. Can't wait to see this. All right, this one just came in from a Nigerian guy. This I wish you could see this email. It's just a giant block of text. I don't know uh, if he uses a different kind of email system or what, but sometimes of text, and that's what this is. But it's worth it. Uh, so I'm just going to read this quickly, as quickly as possible, but I'm really not going to skip over it because it's like this is a fucking rant. It's a good rant. This dude knows how to rant. All right. And what's his name? Ebele. Ebele, I won't try to pronounce your last name. It's funky as hell. Ebele is from Nigeria. He's living in the UK right now. And uh, so here we go. This is going to be long, so I apologize in advance. So I want to preface this by saying I've pretty much absorbed everything you've been involved in that I could find or pay for on the internet from your articles, your book, your podcast, the ones you've been on. But something is still amiss. It all makes sense. It all makes so much sense, perhaps too much. I say too much because the stuff you talk about just doesn't sit well with certain people, and it baffles me. There's so much cognitive dissonance between what the doctor with three last names says, that's me, Christopher Patrick Ryan, and how we are and what we've done. <laughs> that's true. That is true. Uh, 
I mean, in that cognitive dissonance is what my whole so-called career is about, Ebele, as you may know. Uh, for instance, why is it that upon Europeans encountering black and brown folks around the world, they deem them not only primitive and backwards, but subhuman? And then proceeded to rape them as much as murder and slave, et cetera, et cetera. I don't get it. I assume perhaps it's part of this whole fetishization thing. The same way homophobes are usually closeted gays or racists are into the porn of their prejudice. I still don't get it. How does one reconcile sticking his dick into something he proudly declares to be non-human? You think I'm a baboon, right? Okay, cool. Then, then why are you fucking me? Is it some kind of warped, twisted denial, but at the same time an admittance that we're all human? If only to inflict pain and suffering, why don't they just do, why just do all the other things European settlers did without their, oh, I see. Why don't they just do the other things like the killing and the enslaving without the rape, right? So I'm going to pause here. So his question is, what's with the sex? Like, if you don't think we're human, then why are you, why are you fucking us? Okay. My response to that would be a couple of things, uh, a superficial level and then a deeper level. The superficial level is that we're talking almost entirely about men uh, on ships for a long time. So for the kinds of people you're reading about, your Vasco da Gamas, your Christopher Columbuses, your Amerigo Vespucci's, your Captain Cook's... Um, Pussy is very scarce. Very, very, very scarce. Um, you're Charles Darwin's uh -huh, on the Beagle. Um, and so uh, my apologies to you young ladies who are listening to this. Um, but the young men know what I'm talking about. There is a time in your life where you will stick your dick into just about anything. I, I had a friend who was so horny one night, it was raining, and he was out walking around. He was in his late teens or something. He admitted this to me years later, and he's about to regret it. Now nah, I'm not going to say his name, but he told me that uh, he was out walking around. It was a warm rain, and he was walking by this garden, and there, there was freshly turned earth, and it was all sort of warm and muddy, and, and he, he just got down and, and literally fucked the earth. Um, and I don't think that's all that unusual. You know, we know about farm boys and the, you know, animals. And, um, so I don't think the, the bar is really very high on what it is that a lot of men, especially young, lonely men will stick their dicks into not to insult you or any Brown people. I'm not saying that, uh, well, you know what I'm not saying. Uh, so that's one level. They're just horny as hell and testosterone crazed and so far away from, um, you know, real human women like Victorian uptight women who wouldn't let them fuck them anyway. Um, so that's the superficial level. But I think on a deeper level, and I think this is really what the, the guy's getting at here, what he's trying to, you know, nail down, uh, is that... I think that explorers, um, certainly, you read about, read the, the letters from Christopher Columbus back to the king and queen upon encountering the people of Hispaniola, the, the native Arawak population. He says in one of his first letters to them, these are the, the most generous, kind people I, you can imagine. If... You ask, if, if you uh, admire something, they, they immediately give it to you without thinking. They're beautiful, they're healthy, they're strong, they're laughing all the time. They're, they're innocent of, of metal and swords. They grab a sword by the, by the handle and or by the blade and they're surprised when it cuts them. They, there's food everywhere. They don't want for anything. There's fruit in the trees and plentiful fish in the waters and in fact, some people say maybe this is the origin of calling them Indians because at this point in his letter he says, Seguramente es gente que vive en Dios. Certainly these are people who live with God. And in Spanish, Indios is what they're called. In God, Indios. 
Now, I've heard other arguments, and certainly from what I've read, uh, Colón, or as he's called in Spanish, or Columbus, did believe he was in Asia. And so I don't know. I don't have a, a final answer on the question of why he called them Indians or Indios. But, but certainly he described people who lived in paradise. And then, and then he shifts, and he says in the next paragraph, with 50 good soldiers, I could subjugate the population of the entire island. They would make wonderful slaves. Now, this is something I'm getting at in Civilized to Death, this sickness, this sickness of what we call civilization is unbelievable. And I know this makes lots of people angry. This is along the same lines as the, um, you know, blame America first kind of thing. You know, oh, yeah, it's always America's fault. Sure. We're out there defending freedom, you know, helping everybody out and sacrificing our young men and women and our treasure trying to, you know, defeat communism is what it used to be. And now it's fighting terrorism, the current enemy. And everybody blames us and yeah, blah, blah. Yeah. The problem with that is that there's a big difference between the guy who's saying that, who's probably not a bad guy, and who has a legitimate grievance because he knows people who've gone overseas and come back missing a leg, or he knows people whose kids have gone over and never come back, or he's got buddies who he went to Vietnam with and he saw what happened to them there. And so he knows they were good people. He knows the sacrifice is incredible that has been taken. And it's real, and it's in blood, and it's in years lost, and it's in incredible sadness, and all those things are legitimate. But what that guy isn't understanding is that the sacrifice was not made to protect freedom. The sacrifice was not made for a good reason. The sacrifice was made because he and his buddies got fucking conned. His buddies lost their lives, not to the Vietnamese, not to the Viet Cong, not to the Afghanis. They lost their lives to the propaganda of their own fucking country. So, yes, I blame America first, but only because it happens to be America. Every country does it. Every religion does it, except Buddhism, which doesn't consider itself to be a religion. There's no Vatican of Buddhism. There's no power structure of Buddhism that is, you know overreaching and asking for money all the time. So I don't even consider Buddhism to be a religion. But institutions do this. Institutions convince people to do shit that is completely against their interests, but in the interest of the institution. And the way it does this is by pulling strings called patriotism, strings called honor, strings called heroism, strings called freedom, the American way, or the French way, or the British way, or the Indian way, or the Pakistani way, or whatever the fucking way it is, whatever country's trying to convince you to do shit that you should not ever do, that's how they do it. It's oldest fucking trick in the book. So what I believe in response to what he's saying is that civilization is a mutant life form, a superorganism within which we are embedded, and that superorganism has its own interests that are not in alignment with our interests as individuals. So civilization is, uh, you know, the, the broadest term. And within civilization, you have super organisms that are countries, that are companies, that are religions. And so as you go down the levels, the next level is human communities, human families and in individuals and so on. But there's a leap from the biological level of human beings to this superorganism level of institutions. And Sebastian Junger, who's one of the most articulate uh, and passionate and intelligent commenters on warfare these days, uh, I remember him talking about that where he says, I think it was in his book War, 
where he was embedded with these guys in the Korengal Valley. I think I may have talked about this before. Um, and he was with the Marines, I think six months, a long time, a long fucking time. And they were getting shot at day after day and going through all this incredible hardship and deprivation. And I remember, I think maybe it was Bill Maher or someone, I don't remember, interviewing him. And he's like, but why do they do this, Sebastian? Why do they do this? These guys don't, and they're not interested in pipelines and, you know, geopolitical power struggles between European interests and, you know, India and China. And, you know, nobody even knows what the fuck the war in Afghanistan was really about. Has anyone ever explained that to you in a way that made sense? It certainly wasn't about 9-11. 9-11, I don't know, find the guys who... who who'd, you know, send in special forces, find the guys who did it and call in the fucking bombs. You don't need to invade a country to do that. It wasn't about 9-11. It was, it was about controlling a strategic part of the globe and using that as, a, as an example to keep China in check and whatever. It, in other words, it was an argument, a struggle between superorganisms and people are just get sucked into it. The same way the microbes in your gut get sucked into weird shit every time you travel in a foreign country and suddenly there are all these new microbes showing up and there's a struggle for control and all this. They weren't asking for trouble. That was you. You made some decision that affected them. That's what happens in wars and countries. So what I think is that Europeans who have been living in the superorganism for centuries, when they encounter people who are not embedded in a superorganism because hunter-gatherers are not superorganisms. That's the fundamental, essential uh, quantum leap between hunter-gatherers and uh, tribal agricultural people that have these civilizations that are on a scale in which everyone can't know everyone else personally. That's, that's the birth of the institution. When I am making decisions about your life, but I've never met you, then I'm treating you as an abstraction and I can make decisions that I would never make with someone who knew me where my reputation was vulnerable to it and so on. Read Sex of Dawn. I talk about that to some extent. And in this next book, I talk about it a lot more. So my point is, okay, why did the white guys fuck the brown women and not just kill them? or enslave them or it's because they're alive and i think that's the fetishization because even though they're stuck in this micro, in this superorganism that shapes their thinking in a way that's essentially unhuman when they encounter these women like the women in the south pacific who had no shame around sexuality who were welcoming of these guys on these boats, these disgusting, stinking fucking guys, horny as hell and sick and festering boils. And I mean, imagine how disgusting those fucking guys were who came off those ships. And these women were bathing them and fucking them and kissing them and bringing them fruit because that's the way they treat travelers, because that's the way most people around the world treated guests until the guests started raping and fucking pillaging that's the way the eskimos treated guests the inuit that's the way i have a friend still 30 years ago i met in nepal he told me he walked across madagascar from the from the west coast up over the mountain range down to the east coast and he said every village he came to this is a german guy i met in pokhara nepal taught me to juggle anyway he told me every village he came to the people would come out. First, the little kids would run out. And when news came that this white guy was showing up, they'd run out. There are no roads. This is like way back. And they'd, the little kids would come out all laughing and they'd hold his hands and bring him in. And somebody would take his pack and they'd carry his pack. And it was like a big deal. Hey, this guy's here. Oh, my God, this guy's here. And then they'd bring him food and he'd hang out by the fire and I don't, he did, maybe he juggled, I don't know, he did something to amuse them, and everybody had a good time. And then, as the fire wore down, it got late, then it became time for him to choose which woman he wanted to sleep with. And it was an honor for her. And the others were cool, you know, but everybody wanted to sleep with him. And that's just how a traveler was treated. 
Give him food, give him whatever he wants, and give him pleasure, and let him sleep in the nicest hammock, and then send him on his way when he's ready to leave. That's the way we are when we're human. But when we're civilized, we turn into something else. But there's still part of us that's human deep down inside that, that misses it and knows that this isn't right. And that's why people are depressed. That's why people are pissed off. That's why everybody's got fucking PTSD and ADD and all the other acronyms. Because we're, we're sick because of the shape of the cage we're in. All right. Sorry. Whew, got, got a little carried away right there. So I'll continue with his rant. Drop my rant for a minute here. Um, and he, he talks about like he doesn't get it. Why would women be ascend, uh, offended by my work? Because from his perspective, it's um, liberating for women, you know, talking about their sexuality being as strong as men's or stronger in some ways of measuring and, you know, that they're sexual beings and all that. Um yeah, some women do get threatened by that, but I think they're getting threatened by it because they're looking at it and saying, wait a minute, this guy and this work, this this rant that this guy's on is essentially trying to take away the only thing we have in the modern world, especially in a place like Nigeria, which is still, in my understanding, quite... Um, Machistic, uh, I forget the word in English, you know, male dominated, um, at least in the public square, getting work and politics and all that. Um, you know, so a lot of women are stuck in a situation where the only power they have is through the only lever that they con they control is their man, their husband. It's the only way they get money, the only way they get status, get respect, get whatever, is to like control this guy and there's this essential deal and when he breaks the deal then they've got a little more power and you know they can divorce him they can humiliate him they can whatever and so they look at my message of saying hey people you know should not mix that kind of power with sexuality it doesn't need to be that way it didn't need to be that it, did, it wasn't that way before and they're like oh yeah thanks a lot you know thanks you're going to liberate me from the only thing i have and I get that. I understand that. Whereas the response I get from women in cultures where they have more direct access to power is much more positive because then they don't feel that threat. Um, they're only reading it in terms of the sexuality, not so much in, in the economic terms. So I understand why women in Nigeria would be saying, yeah, you know, fuck that guy, Chris Ryan. Um, I get it. But I do think that on some level if they've read the book and, and they are giving it a fair hearing, I do think that on some level they're probably going to agree that that I'm right. But what they're saying is, yeah, yeah but in this world, the world I live in, um, I want to marry a guy and have him provide money for me and my kids because otherwise I'm going to be homeless because I can't get a job that makes pays anywhere near what he would earn. And they're right about that. Okay, so anyway, uh, he goes on. He's he's looking at like sort of like why do people want to participate in something if they know it's oppressive? Um, you know, he says like so why why do women who see through the whole thing want to get married anyway? I don't understand, for example, why gay people have fought so hard for the right to marry when marriage is one of the things that turned them into a marginalized community to begin with. Why do people want to have their cake and eat it? Why do all these gluten-free crystal chakra festival fairies with blonde dreadlocks complain about being the only species that has to pay to live because of the government, man, but they won't take the time to learn how to grow, how to forage, how to hunt for, hunt for food, how to build shelter? Something I've been doing for the last six months all over the UK, he says through woofing arrangements, that's uh, working on organic farms in, in exchange for room and board. Uh, why is everything so awesome and no one is happy? Why do people not think it isn't normal to have to buy water and that you can be jailed for collecting rainwater? Or that it's not normal to have to pay to sleep in a tent on a patch of dirt? Why do people want to travel and still... Don't, despite having the means. Or why do people want to travel, know how to go about it, 
know this, but still ask people like you how to do it as if they're expecting a different answer that'll somehow reconcile their propensity to get bored easily with their urge to stay comfortable? These are profound questions here. Most know you can have one without the other, but so why do they still ask, hey, Chris, how do I start traveling? What are they expecting to hear? Okay, there's a lot going on here. I think one of the one of the issues is that we and it relates to what I was saying before about about being civilized but but being you know you put a wolf in a cage and five generations later you've got a wolf that's never known anything but the cage, right? And so if you let it out of the cage, it's not going to know what to do. You open the door, it'll just sit there and look at you. It doesn't know where to go. It doesn't know how to survive. It doesn't know what's happening. And that's pathetic and sad and tragic. But it's still a wolf. There's part of it that's still a wolf. It doesn't, it's not completely a wolf, but it's still partly a wolf. And I think that's where we are. We're you know, even inside the, the the most pathetic poodle, there's a little bit of wolf in there somewhere. And so I think that's the cognitive dissonance that he's pointing at, you know, that people want wildness. They want adventure. They want excitement. They want to be challenged. They want to feel, where are my limits? But... Another part of them just wants to lie on the fucking sofa and watch Anthony Bourdain eating weird shit. And I get it. I'm the same. I'm definitely the same, especially when it comes to eating weird shit. I've lived all over the world. I've eaten a lot of weird shit, but not intentionally. Like, I'm not, I couldn't do what Anthony Bourdain does. I couldn't like, oh, you know, that's wild hog asshole. Yeah, I'll, I'll try some of that. No, 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 no. Couldn't do it unless I'm starving. And I've never been that hungry. I've eaten weird. The weird shit I've eaten has been unintentional. The fucking puppies. I've told that story. I didn't know they were puppies. If I knew they were puppies, I wouldn't have eaten them. I, I swear I would. I, I couldn't have. I'm glad I did. It's a good story. You know, I can say I have eaten puppies and they were cute and I played with them before I ate them. So at least, you know, I was friendly. Uh, but... Yeah, I get freaked out about food. If if it, if it grosses, I can't eat raw oysters. I wish I could. I think it's cool. I think I think people who eat raw oysters are cooler than me, man. They're on the beach. They they're drinking their beer. They got the fire going. They they're shucking their raw oysters. They just pulled out, and it's all briny and tastes like the sea. And and you put a little lemon or tabasco and you see the the snotty oyster sort of like contracting and i don't know what what it's feeling if anything and then they you know down the gullet and drink some white wine or some beer and hey it's a fucking party and i wish i was that guy but you put a raw oyster in my mouth i'm gonna just puke it right into the fire it's just a big cold lump of snot as far as i'm concerned so i think that's that we all have that, right? Where we are the animal and shit, the animal in me would love raw oysters. I'm sure all my ancestors ate raw oysters going back a hundred thousand years. But me, I don't know. I grew up in Western Pennsylvania, never had a raw oyster till I was in my twenties. And by then it was too late. So, uh, the, our sense of disgust and our sense of what is possible to enjoy is largely controlled by the culture that we're in. It's embedded in us, and it's very, very hard to think your way out of that. It's possible, but it's very difficult. And I think that's what a lot of psychotherapy really is. I think most neurosis is based on the conflict between the culture and the animal. And I, I think Freud talked about this to some extent, but I would probably go further. And and when the culture is sick, as ours most clearly is, it, it destroys us, it gets us to destroy each other, it, dis it fucks up the water and then sells it to us in plastic bottles that are then fucking up the ocean, 
it fucks up the air and then wants us to buy little air filters that sit on our desk or wants us to like go around with surgical masks over our face the way millions of people do in China and Japan. It destroys the fucking planet. I mean, there's no question. I don't think anybody at this point could dispute the notion that we live in a sick culture. I don't care. And pick your definition of sick and pick your definition of culture. And I still think uh, I can demonstrate that ours is a sick culture. So when you're trying to be healthy in a sick culture, uh, you're you're going uphill. You're swimming upstream. It's hard. It's hard work. And I think that's what psychotherapy is. And that's why I think it's really important for psychotherapists to to not just be reinforcing the cultural narrative, but to be helping people escape it because the cultural narrative is sick. You know, 30 years ago, they were, they were giving teenage boys electroshock therapy to help them stop being gay. As, as we talk about in Sex at Dawn, 100 years ago, they were rubbing acid into little girls' clitorises to help them stop touching themselves in an unhealthy way. It took 100 years for them to figure out it wasn't fucking unhealthy, that there's nothing wrong with little girls touching themselves, you sick fuck. The sickness was the doctors. They were transmitting the sickness by transmitting the cultural narrative, telling people that they're not animals. When's the last time you looked at your shit, animal? Oh, no, my, I don't look at shit. I, you just, like, pretend you don't shit? What do you do? You shit into this thing, it's dark, and you flush it, and you never see it, and you wipe your ass with paper, and you never see that either, and so you can go continue in your fucking illusion that you're not an animal, that you don't shit? Of course you shit. Deal with it. I was talking with a friend earlier today about this, and, and we were talking about how, for me, living in India for an extended period of time was a really important um, training in this detribalization, this deculturalization. Because, yeah, I grew up with the same fucking narrative. I grew up with the idea that cleanliness is next to godliness and that shit is disgusting and something I never want to think about or talk about. Now look at me. I talk about it all the time. Because in India, I, I, came, I, you know, I wiped my ass with my left hand for six months at a, at a go. And you know, I noticed, like, oh, today it's runny and brown, and yesterday it's, it had seeds in it. Oh, that was from that thing I ate at lunch. And oh, look, and there's this. I learned a lot about my body, and, and I also learned a lot about my mind. And one of the things I learned is that this whole thing about shit, this whole hang-up, is complete bullshit. It's completely something that the culture stuck in my head that is dysfunctional. It's heavy for me to carry around. It stops me from monitoring my own digestive system in a healthy way. It, it makes me ashamed of myself. It's all oh, this, I keep saying bullshit, but it, it is bullshit. Uh, so I don't know where the fuck I'm ranting off into here. So, okay, so that's what I'm getting back to this thing. Like, why do people believe all this dumb stuff? Why do they believe it's normal that you have to pay for water? Part of it's that the culture convinces us of stuff, and it convinces us when we're too young to know that we're being lied to. Another part is shifting baseline, right? Most of the people listening to me right now are probably, what, in their 20s, maybe 30s. So that means that most of you were born uh, in the 90s, if that's insane, Um you know, or or after the that's incredible. Anyway, eighties, nineties, whatever. For you, bottled water is just like yeah, that's that's normal. I'm fifty four. I was born in nineteen sixty two. I never saw bottled water till I was probably in college in the early eighties, and that was Perrier, and that was just for. I mean, Perrier, you'd order Perrier the way some dipshit orders Cristal now. It's just to show off and be a fucking blowhard. It wasn't, the water was fine. Tap water was fine. New York City has some of the cleanest tap water in the world. But that's where you saw the Perrier and the fine restaurants. And, oh, yes, I'm having a French water. It was flown in just yesterday from the springs in southern France where the blah, blah, blah. That was the first 
bottled water I ever saw. And then, and then you just saw it take off. Now, why did it take off? The water was still clean. Still to this day, the tap water's cleaner in, in many places. I don't know, America, now there's a problem with lead and cities lying about the water. But in those days, the water was pretty clean coming out of the tap. The, you know, that was before the Republicans gutted all the environmental protections and the testing and all that. So things were being tested. Things were clean. It was okay. And you could drink water from the fucking hose as I did all my childhood. I love drinking water from the hose. It's just spraying it in my face like a fucking horse. That That's great. But then the bottled water thing took off. And now you people, you young, youngsters out there, to you, bottled water is normal. And you're probably not comfortable drinking out of the tap, depending where you grew up and where you live. You don't know what you're missing. I think about when I was a little kid in western Pennsylvania, I... I used to go out with my friends and we'd catch frogs all the time in these streams in the woods near my house. Oh, there's frogs everywhere. There are all, all these frogs. Now there are fucking no frogs. The frogs are gone. They all died. Because the frogs are, are mixed metaphor here. Frogs are the canaries in the coal mine. Because they're amphibious, because all these chemicals enter through their skin when they're toxins in the water and, and uh, when, when shit starts to get poison, the amphibians are the first to go. So frog po- populations in North America and, and actually in most of the world have collapsed in the last 30 years. So little kids now running through those same woods, they don't see any frogs, but they don't miss them because they never saw the frogs. Shifting baseline. It's a shifting baseline theory, it's called. So you grow up and you look around and you say, this is the way, this is the the sort of normal state of things. And then as you get older, you look back and say, oh, it's changed. It used to be, it used to be, you know, better. But I remember, in my case, all the frogs. But somebody who's 30 years older than me might say, yeah, but you don't remember the deer and the bears. And someone older than him would say, yeah, and you don't remember the fucking mountain lions that used to go around in those woods. And someone older than him would say, yeah, and before the fucking white people got here, uh, there were buffalo. There were forest buffalo all over eastern United States. That's true. So the, the baseline of what's considered normal keeps shifting with each, each generation. And the condition you're born into is very quickly assumed to be the normal baseline condition. Okay, back to, uh, back to this rant from what's his name Ebele Ebele I hope I'm pronouncing that good well yeah I wanted to go back and read this again why do people want to have their cake and eat it why do all these gluten-free crystal chakra festival fairies with blonde dreads complain about being the only species that have to pay to live because of the government man but won't take the time to learn how to grow forage or hunt or build shelter love that line And he continues, why are there so many non-white Christians? I wonder about that too. Like all these Africans who are really into Christianity. That's kind of sick to me, you know, that's that's embracing the oppressor. Um, Anyway, and yet so many white people running around looking for ancestor spirits, wearing knockoff Native American headdresses in the forest at their so-called tribal gathering festivals like Burning Man. And then he says, little tidbit, I went to Burning Man in South Africa, and I was the only black guy there. <laughs> That's amazing. He says, imagine, in Africa. I saw lots of African clothes, drums, dances. Heck, I even heard people talking about my tribe, but I'm the only black person I met. Some of the loudest monogamy advocates I know are also the most promiscuous, in the sense that they cycle through so many short-term monogamous relations and end up getting laid more than I do, a guy who honestly lets women know in one way or another that I'm not monogamous. Why am I the one that goes seven months without getting laid when my other friends are constantly getting laid by lying? Again, it's because you live in a sick society. So if you want to fit in and you want to excel, you want to be successful in this game, you have to play by the rules of the game. Your problem, Ebele and mine and a lot of the people who are listening to this, is that we look at this game and we say this game is bullshit. 
This is bullshit. And the thing that people will not accept, many people, is that you question the legitimacy of the game. They much prefer that you cheat and you get caught cheating because then they can forgive you. What's unforgivable is that you question the legitimacy of the game. And that's why, that's why David Vitter is still in the Senate. David Vitter, who's a Christian fundamentalist, family man, God-fearing, church-going, New Orleans-living motherfucker who got caught because his name was in the D.C. Madam's phone book, along with notations about the kinky shit that he was into, which, if memory serves me, was wearing diapers and acting like a baby and probably, you know, peeing and having this hooker change his diaper and put talcum powder on his little balls. This guy's still in the Senate 10, 15 years later. Why? Because he... He stepped in front of a camera with his wife and he begged God for forgiveness for his sins and he said he was going to go get therapy and blah, 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 bullshit. It's because he didn't question the legitimacy of the fucking game. He said, I got caught cheating. I'm a bad boy. I'll, I'll do whatever I have to do. But this, this game is legitimate. I'm with you. The game's real. But man, you step back and say, hey, this game is bullshit. Oh, nobody forgives that. I can't tell you how many women. No, I literally will not tell you how many women I, over the years, uh, things fell apart um, because they would prefer that I were uh, that I'm a liar. They like they can accept a liar. And a lot of my friends have told me the same thing friends who are polyamorous or whatever it's like yeah man meet a woman she's great everything's fine uh she you know flirting with you definitely wants to hook up and whatever and then you say to her yeah i have a girlfriend she's great and you know like oh well oh so you cheat on your girlfriend and hmm, that's kind of exciting yeah we're gonna go cheat on your girlfriend no i don't cheat on my girlfriend what do you mean you know you mean you would tell her about this you would tell her about me? Yeah, of course. Oh, no. That's sick. That can't can't do that. Completely cool if you're lying to your girlfriend or your wife. That's cool. That's kind of hot. But you're telling the truth? No, that's a deal breaker. It's because you're questioning the legitimacy of the game. So he sums it up. He says, so basically what I'm trying to figure out is... What makes people get comfortable in oppression? Why do slaves get comfortable in their chains? Why are people amazed by all these stupid high-tech baby carriers? And I'm just sitting here like, what the fuck, Dad? You just spent a lot of money to be more effective in not being in physical contact with your child, <laughs> which is true. You see these baby carriers, it's like, oh, you need a blanket. Put the baby in the blanket, wrap it around your fucking neck, and you're both going to be happier. You don't need the shock absorbers, three-wheel, $400 super deluxe baby carrier. The baby wants to be in your arms. That's where the baby wants to be, not in a fucking contraption. Yeah. And then he says, that's the end result of all this progress, in quotes. Funny how they use the same word to describe cancer. You bastard. It's like you read my manuscript. That's in there. I, there's a whole thing about progress and how we use, you know, the disease is progressing. And yeah, so anyway, another cat out of that bag. Yeah. So and then he ends by saying, why is it so hard to convince people we all got screwed in this big bum fucking deal? Uh, I don't know, brother. <laughs> I don't know. But that's what I'm trying to do. And it sounds like that's what you're trying to do, and it's an uphill climb, but I think it's worthwhile. And as to why people get comfortable in their chains, I don't think it's that they get comfortable. I think it's that they learn to stop feeling the pain, which isn't quite the same as comfortable. It's close. Very close. Um, 
but it's not quite the same. I, I think I talked about this experience a few months ago. I was in a, at a friend's house in in L.A. And they're very comfortable financially. They're wonderful people. I stay with them every time I go there. They've got a guest house and beautiful property. It's really lovely. And um, and they had just recently bought a new bed for themselves, and they loved it so much that they bought another mattress for the guest house. And so the my hostess said, "Hey, let me know how you feel tomorrow. Like you know what you think about this bed because uh, we really love it." And and it's like a, it's, I don't know, $5,000 bed with the super deluxe comforter and the pillows and that. Anyway, the next morning at breakfast, she said, what would you think of that bed? And I thought, I, I didn't think anything of that bed because I lay down in it and suddenly I was unconscious until I woke up. And then I got up and I took a shower and and it never entered my mind. The experience of being on that bed was a non-experience, which I guess is another way of saying it was incredibly comfortable. But it was a non-experience. So is that comfort or is that nullity? Is that you think of comfort as a positive thing, right? Oh, I'm so comfortable. This feels great. Well, I can't really say that felt great. It didn't feel like anything. It was like being in a sensory deprivation tank. Like, hey, did that feel good? Well, no, it, it didn't feel like anything. And so I think that is why people get comfortable in their chains, because after a while, they don't feel them anymore. There's a beautiful book by... Maya Angelou, the title is one of the best titles ever. It's called I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. I was going to play Comfortably Numb by Pink Floyd, but I can't do that. I, I, don't, I try not to play anything mainstream that's going to get me in trouble with anyone. Uh, I try to focus on people who send in music to the podcast or... Or music that you wouldn't have heard of anyway, so I can legitimately say, no, I'm spreading the word of this music, but everybody's already heard of Pink Floyd, and I don't want to cause problems or deal with problems. So if you don't know the song, Comfortably Numb, from the album The Wall by Pink Floyd, please pause this and go to YouTube or your iTunes library or whatever and check it out. It's a really beautiful song, and it gets right down to the heart of what I've been talking about here for quite a while. Thank you, Ebele, for your email. Um, I've been talking so fucking long that I think this is going to be a standalone Roma episode. The first standalone Roma episode. I, um, you know, I, I got this email and I was thinking about it and I thought I should just record this thing while I'm thinking about it and then I'll, I'll merge it and edit it and, you know, merge it with other stuff later and nobody will ever know. And, but um, now I look, I've been talking for 46 minutes. Uh, fuck it, this is an episode. I'll just throw this up. So thank you, Ebele. Uh, hope you're feeling fine wherever you are, despite the fact that you're living in a world full of foreigners. There's a beautiful book. Uh, this sort of might, might be interesting for you and other people who are feeling the same way. It's called Bliss by Peter Carey, who's an Australian writer. I picked it up in some guest house in Southeast Asia somewhere a long time ago, uh, and it blew my fucking mind. It's an incredible book, very easy to read, short, um, kind of simple. And I'll tell you, I'm not ruining the story, uh, so I encourage you to read this book if, if this sounds interesting to you. Here's what happens in like the first 10 pages. You meet the main character. He's got an advertising company in Sydney or Melbourne or somewhere. He's married, a uh, good relationship with his wife. He's got a couple of kids. They're teenagers in school, getting good grades, sweet little girl. She's like 11 or 12, and the son's 15 or 14. And So they're going to go to college. And Just your sort of typical, everything's going great, middle class existence. He's got his favorite table at the restaurant where he goes for lunch with clients and got a nice car. Okay. 
Um, one morning he gets up and he's going to work and he goes out after breakfast, goes out to get in the car and he has a heart attack. Thunk. Lands on the driveway on his back. He's out. And his wife sees it, calls the ambulance and she's crying. And he has one of these experiences where he floats up above his body and he's looking down at the whole thing, this out-of-body experience. He sees the ambulance crew arrive. He sees them, you know, rushing around and all this stuff. And he's just calmly watching it all from the clouds. And then he wakes up in the hospital. Boom. I'm in the hospital. And there's the machine. Beep, 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 beep. His wife's there. And, oh, my God, you're, you're awake. Oh, we, we were so scared. And, and um... So he survives the heart attack. And when he gets back home, he's different. He realizes that life is precious and brief and can end at any second. And it completely changes the way he looks at things. So one day he's at work and he's like, what am I doing here dealing with all this bullshit paperwork? My lovely wife, I, I, it's been so long since... Like we've gone to the beach together. Or we've just gone for a walk and I, I miss her. And so he leaves the office and he goes home in the middle of the day and goes into the house and and finds his wife in bed fucking his best friend. Hmm. And he realizes this has been going on for a long time and he had no idea. So then he decides, well, okay, at least my kids are great. And he goes to school and picks them up at school or whatever and, and runs into one of the principals. And anyway, I don't remember how. But then he realizes, like, his son is selling drugs and his daughter's, like, you know, giving blowjobs to all these other kids. And it's just like, ah, everything everything's fucked and so he sort of like has what they used to call a nervous breakdown which is just like losing your shit and like wow what's going on and he ends up in this mental hospital and he has a realization that in fact he did die he died and this is hell hell looks just like your normal life but you can't convince yourself of the bullshit anymore. And so that's the beginning of the novel. The rest of the novel is how he goes on with his life, convinced that he's in hell and that pretty much everyone he sees is some sort of robot or actor who's just there to fuck with him. And every once in a while... He meets someone and they'll say something or there'll be some kind of uh, exchange of energy between them where he'll be like, uh, wait, you're real too, right? And they're like, yeah, I'm real. Like, ah, okay, okay. So that's, that's the world he lives in. And ever since I read that novel, I kind of feel like that's the world we all live in. At least those of us like Ebele who look around and say, what the fuck is going on? And how the fuck are these people accepting this as normal? Ignorance is bliss. Thanks for your email, Ebele. Hope everybody's doing well. And I hope I didn't bore you by ranting for almost an hour. I'm going to play you out with a song called Oh My God by Michael Franti and Spearhead. It's one of the most political songs you're ever going to hear. If you listen to the lyric, you're going to be mortified and amused and educated. It's really worth listening to, especially in this week when the political conventions are starting in the United States, pitting an absolutely insane lunatic who prefers war over any other approach to international affairs and another absolutely insane lunatic who I don't even know what the fuck he prefers. Nobody knows what he, he's the guys. The only difference is one of them's crazy in a conventional way and the other one's crazy in an unconventional way. 
And um, that's the state of affairs in the United States now. People are comforted by a familiar sort of insanity and frightened by um, this new form of insanity, which is untested and uh, unfamiliar. So, hey, good luck with that, America. Anyway, oh my God, Michael Franti. Moving on, moving on. 